Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is a senior staff writer at L.com, where he has written the daily pop culture and politics humor column since 2016. His opinion columns have also been published by The New York Times, among many others. As a playwright, he won the Barrymore Award and the Dramatist Guild Lanford Wilson Award and was a finalist for the Steinberg American Theater Critics Association New Play Award. He's also the long-running host of The Moth Story Slams in Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia. His first book, Here For It, will be published next month. R. Eric Thomas, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So congratulations on your first book, Here For It, or How to Save Your Soul in America. And since it's a memoir, let's start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about something you write very early on, and here's what you write. Quote, I grew up a little ball of potential but oblivious gay energy in a Baptist family from a black Baltimore neighborhood where there were more abandoned houses than lived-in ones. My parents sent me to school in a rich suburb where most of my classmates were white. Every moment from then on, I was an other, capital O. The thing is, I felt it, but I didn't realize it. So talk about that experience a little bit and how it shaped your worldview. Yeah, I have never had too great a relationship with reality. I don't like to acknowledge it uh, at all. But as a child, I really thought that I was normal whatever normal means, and my family was a standard normal family, and that our lives, the components of our lives, were what every family was experiencing. And then going out into the world and finding these places of friction, you know, friction with my understanding of Blackness in all Black environments, friction with understanding of race in general in mixed-race environments, I didn't at that point realize that I was gay, but you know, it's kind of like John Mulaney says, like, every little kid is a little gay. And, like, that's exactly yep. it. Yeah. <laughs> I was more than a little gay. Uh, I was like, hmm, what is going on? I can't quite figure it out. So, like, this dissonance that I kept experiencing in the world was so confusing to me. And so, like, fast forward, you know, 33 years, I get to sit down and start to write this book. I was very interested in not presenting a story where I said, Welcome to my strange and weird world of being a queer Black Christian person in America. How exotic. I was very interested in saying, I think that, uh, I think that my experience is as valid as anyone else's. And that's what the act of storytelling is. You, know, you put yourself into a protagonist position and you invite the audience, the listener, the reader, to care about the things that you care about as if they are things that affect their own lives. So I was very interested in pushing back on this idea of other and questioning what purpose it serves for me, for the world in general, and sort of like meta-textually, like what it serves in the act of memoir writing. 
that definitely comes through throughout the book. And it's a joy to read it. It's I found it very easy to read from one paragraph to the next and, and from one chapter to the next. In the book, you write about becoming a viral content creator when you posted a picture of President Obama, the prime minister of Canada, and the president of Mexico. Mm -hmm. Talk about that photo and the reaction. It's just gorgeously composed. They are, I believe, I think they're come, They're at G8. I, don't recall, I can't recall. I should look it up. But I'd seared into my memory. They're walking down a red carpet. There's two Mounties on either side of them. They're framed by sky and flags and architectural arches. And they're laughing. They've all got on bespoke suits. They're all mid-stride. And it looks, it looks like an ad. And I don't know what the ad is for, but I'm buying all of it. <laughs> and I, I remember I woke up, it was on a Saturday morning, and I saw that photo on The Guardian, I believe, or the Daily Mail, and I was struck. I was. It looks like a movie poster, and I am a fan of President Obama, and I, I you know, I, I have been a fan of Prime Minister Trudeau, although I think that we are going our separate ways for various reasons. It um, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. and um, And in that moment, I was... I sort of, their roles as political leaders kind of got completely divorced from what their appearance was, which was sort of marquee idols. It felt very Ocean's Eleven-y. And so I just wrote about it. And I wrote this on Facebook. Uh, I wrote this long post about how hot it was. And, you know, if I had to choose a, a way for my career to begin, I don't know that, like, <laughs> Thirsting after a sitting president is exactly the way I would go for it. You work with what you got. Exactly. You know, it's the it's my gift. And so that that post was shared like 17,000 times. I had like 60,000 likes. And it was more than anything that I'd ever experienced. And it brought me to the attention of my former editor at Elle, uh, Leah Chernikoff. And she sent me a Facebook message and said, like, do you want to do this kind of thing all the time? And I was like be publicly thirsty for Barack Obama? And she's like, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe, but like comment on politics and culture. And I said, uh, sure, because I'm never one to pass up a chance to write or to say things that will eventually embarrass my children. And so we started right before the DNC that year. And very quickly, we, we established a groove with the column and figuring out like what the voice was. And it was very similar to that initial post where it was this sort of joyful appreciation of what was going on in the world and also sort of sometimes a more sharp or satirical, critical analysis of what was going on in the world and, and seeing pop culture and politics as not two separate kingdoms, but part of one larger ecosystem for better and for worse. It was smart of her to glean that from a Facebook post yeah. and give that opportunity. And it looks like it worked out for everyone in that situation. She certainly had an eye for what would have been very helpful in the election and, and going forward after that. I, I think that's admirable that she was able to see that from that post. You also write about Congresswoman Maxine Waters mm -hmm. in the book, and she's also the subject of your second book out later this year, which I'll get to in a bit. But here's what you wrote. Quote, in late January 2017, just before the inauguration, Congresswoman Maxine Waters of California gave a terse, fiery press conference in which she said that then-FBI Director James Comey had no credibility. 
Watching the 20-second video, I felt the disparate streams of my writing voice come together, and I pounced on it with glee. She was black, she was confident, she was extra, and she wasn't mincing words. Honey, I lived. The internet (laughs) responded vociferously. So that led you to become known as a meme creator. Explain how all of that happened. It was, again, it's so strange, these internet stories, because you sort of relay them and they don't follow any sort of the rules of storytelling. It's sort of like, uh, nothing was happening and then something was happening and then everything was happening. But I remember the clip where she, you know, she shows up, she's wearing a red suit. I, oh my gosh, I can still see it very, very clearly. Me too. She shows up, you know, there's this press conference, the press is gathered. She says, hello, can I help you? What do you want? Which is hilarious to me because this is a press conference. So I think we're all aware of what's happening. And, like, I think it was – I'm always sort of on the lookout for different moments in the culture that seem to – that seem to align with some other current. So, like, you know, politicians who suddenly drop into, like, farce or celebrities, music stars that suddenly have a strange understanding of, of what their position is. And, like, the other day, I, I like, Justin Bieber was – um gave this long soliloquy about how he needed to be number one with his new single. And Haley, his wife, was in the background just consoling him and saying, you can be number two. And he films this and put it, puts it on TikTok or Instagram, I believe. And I like that, to me, looked like like an Evil Van Hove a version of Death of a Salesman. And so like I tweeted about that. So I'm really interested in these connections. And so for me to see a, a sitting congresswoman have no filter... In this way. And I think it seemed like no filter, but I also understand since that, like, she does have a filter, but she didn't feel the need to filter that part of her speech was really exciting and really freeing to me. And so I wrote about it with a sort of wild abandon. I wrote about it like I was calling somebody on the phone and screaming at them about it. And it really took off. And my mother came home from the hairdresser, and she was like, why are there people at the hairdresser talking about you? And I was like, (laughs) honey, I don't know, because I'm fabulous. And I didn't really understand. She was like, they're reading this article that you wrote. And I was like, oh, this has really gotten legs. And I think it was this combination of, like, a can-you-believe-this-is-happening moment with also sort of an understanding that sometimes things that happen in real life and are very serious also seem like those scenes in movies that we replay over and over again, these things that, that follow the rules of pop culture rather than the rules of reality. Right. I think the things that land are the pieces of relatable content. So thirsting after Barack Obama or whoever it is that you choose, Trudeau, whoever, and or seeing an anti-Maxine or that type of character in your life on a daily basis, those are relatable for mm-hmm. people. So I think those I'm sure those are what land more easily than other types of content and certainly did in your case. Right. Yeah. So in in the book, you write about serious subjects, too, but you do so with humor many times. And one of the things I wanted to talk about 
was the chapter Historically Black, where mm, you talk mm-hmm. about being accepted to colleges and attending weekends for new students of color at various Ivy League schools. And you talk about these weekend events where they wanted you to come experience being black on campus or what it was like to be black on campus. And one of them, they had many colorful names, some mm-hmm. of which were made up, some of which were true, but one was straight up called Third World Weekend. Mm-hmm. And this was in the late 90s. Yeah. <laughs> but talk more about that experience and, and that piece of the book. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things that even when you even when I was like telling my friends about what I was doing that weekend in like uh, I guess junior year, maybe senior year of high school, there was a little voice in the back of my head that was like this is ridiculous. And I feel like a lot of things and I I you know, a lot of times when my parents will tell me stories about the past, about their experiences, in the Vietnam era or late civil rights movement era or even just sort of being adults in the 80s, they will say things that one minute sound completely ridiculous and deranged and and hilarious, and then the next minute sound tragic and horrific. And I think that is very common for a lot of people who have had to navigate different systems of oppression. So for me, going to college was... Such a huge production. I, our, my college, I didn't put this in the book, but my college guidance counselor like looked at my list of school choices and was like, I don't think so. And so I was like, oh, I'll show you, which is, you know, that's on my family crest. I'll show you. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so I was very fortunate to get into these schools, but I was very unclear about what they wanted from me. And so to be invited to get the big envelope and say you're admitted was great. And then to get a smaller envelope with a little photocopy flyer that said, so we, we heard a rumor that you're black, come to the Third World Weekend so you can understand what it's like to be a black person on campus, felt like another kind of othering or being sort of found out. And those experiences were difficult for me to navigate because I wanted to engage with college in general and engage with my blackness But I also wanted to not be othered. I wanted to be able to be normal is such like is a word that I'm using nine million quotation marks around. But I didn't want to have this specialized experience that was even in name was telling me that I lived an experience in the third world. I mean, I know I lived in a different America than some of my classmates. But I thought I still lived in America. And so some of the experiences were really great, really generative. I I had a great time. Well, I had a great time at Cornell, but also the person I was staying with at Cornell, for instance, told me that there was a race war on campus and I shouldn't talk to any white people. So every step of the way, I was like, this feels farcical, but it's happening to me and it's rooted in these things that will continue to affect my life. So revisiting that in the book 20 years later was exciting because I have moved beyond it. But I got to tell a story that where the top line is, can you believe this? But the underlying idea is, of course you can believe it because you live in America and these are the things that exist and have built the structures that we all exist within. And so what are we going to do about it? One of the particularly vivid bits of humor that you weave throughout the book, but in this chapter, I think it's in this chapter, is the 
birthday party that happens <laughs> where there are a group of white people and a group of black people. And the white people begin singing the traditional birthday song at our birthday parties that is slow and boring and often off key. Mm-hmm. And then in comes the Stevie Wonder version. And all of the white people look around and think that for a second they have been transported to an alternate <laughs> universe and don't know what's going on. And you say, that moment right there is reparations. It's a split second of reparations, but reparations nonetheless. Uh, I found that particularly relatable and funny. (laughs) And there are many moments like that throughout the book. So one of the other things that you talk about seriously, but with humor in the book, that I wanted to discuss was struggle with depression mm-hmm. and and figuring that out. And you talk about Kanye West and relating to him and his music and his struggle with depression and with suicidal thoughts. And there's a piece in the book, which I thought you did a wonderful job of being relatable in how you write about it. And, and the piece I wanted to to quote, you say, at this point in my life, I wasn't so much a hero struggling as a man, immobile, trapped between who I was and who I wanted to be, between mistakes and goals, between life and death. And so I played and replayed the album, talking about Kanye West's album, and went to work, and nothing changed. Nothing changed. Nothing changed until a car in Baltimore showed up out of the darkness, and I felt my fingers graze fate's throat. First of all, that's beautiful writing, but talk about what happened with the car in Baltimore and that moment where your fingers grazed fate's throat. Yeah, it's... So, the basics of the car story, my parents live in a large row home in in downtown Baltimore. If you've seen The Wire, you've probably seen my parents' house in passing. And they usually sleep on the third floor, up at the top of the house. But my mother had just had ankle surgery, and so they were sleeping on the first floor. And the house is heated by oil heat, and so there's these two huge drums of oil in the basement of my house. And uh, there apparently was a speakeasy up the street from my parents' house, and this was while I was I was living in Philadelphia at this time. And a car full of a car with three women, three drunk women, came careening down the street in the middle of the night and drove right through the wall of my parents' house, and it got stuck in the wall. And they landed just a couple feet away from, well, about maybe a couple yards away from the oil tanks, which is wonderful because if they had hit the oil tanks, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have parents and I wouldn't have a home. And instead, they landed on my, uh, the, the space in my parents' basement where I left all the things that I didn't really know what to do with, but I didn't want to throw away, including my high school yearbooks. So... It was another one of those moments where you're like, can you believe this is happening? Like, I get a call from my—actually, I got a text message from my brother with just, like, a photo of a hole in my parents' wall and a car. And I was like, I don't understand what this is or how to function around this. And he was a police officer at the time. And so, like, you know, I call him and he gives me, like, the whole rundown, the like, case number and everything. And I was like, Jeffrey, this is too much information. Why is there a car in the house? <laughs> And the it, basics. The basics, you know. So for a long time, it was just this wild story of this weird thing that happened. I went home eventually, and I had to sort through all my junk, and it was, like, wet and, like, covered in, like, gre- car grease and street dirt. And I eventually just threw a whole bunch of things away. And as I was revisiting that period in my life for the book, I also remember just sort of this feeling of immobility. And so I was like, I wonder if I can extend this metaphor. I wonder if I can connect 
these two things. This moment where I throw away all this old, uh, all these old souvenirs of the person that I thought I was going to be, all the, the promise that I had that I thought I'd wasted at this low point in my life. And also, at the same time, sees a new life, sees this opportunity, this wild moment where cars are flying off of a street and, like, piercing the wall of a house. Like, this thing that is almost a tragedy, but, in fact, turned out to be just an anecdote and an insurance claim. And uh, use it to put together a narrative that is about how I climbed out of the lowest point of my life to where I am now. I think a lot about the structure of this book, and I, I, I really do like, I like musical structure. You think about it in a musical, like midway through the second act, there's a point where the hero or heroine has not gotten the thing that they said they wanted right at the top, and all looks like it's going to be lost. And this is common in a lot of movies, too. And I thought about that structure in putting together this book, and I really wanted to kind of break the flow of the book and move it into a new direction because I really did feel like my life sort of broke in that moment. Not that not that the car going through the wall was particularly affecting to me so much as like that period in general in my life was defined by these very dark thoughts and then the question of like are you going to are you going to stay or are you going to go to be really succinct about it. And so to have that moment coincide with this period of my life where I was like, I don't know that there's anything for me to push toward, to hope for, was interesting in retrospect. And I, I wondered whether I could talk about something that was deeply serious while also maintaining the same sort of voice that I'd maintained throughout the book, which incorporates pop culture and incorporates other references and is ultimately reaching toward hope. And that's where that essay came from. I don't want to give too much away to listeners who will pick up the book, but the epilogue seems like maybe the beginnings of actually turning this story into a play or a musical, <laughs> including your love and incorporating your love of musicals. You at least have a good start there. I enjoyed reading that bit of it. <laughs> uh, and I would say it is a unique epilogue for uh, listeners and uh, definitely worth reading. I can't believe they let me do it, honestly. I really like I really thought <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I was like, they're going to throw this away. But I was really I want to see it performed. <laughs> me too. So you also write about in the book about bringing a boyfriend home for the first time. Mm-hmm. And tell us about that because it's a, it's a great story. So, yeah, I was dating a guy named Jay, and my parents had met only one other, maybe, maybe my younger brother. I have two younger brothers. My middle brother brought maybe one, maybe two people home. But we weren't a family where there were constantly partners going in and out. Um, and it took a long time for me to figure out whether I was brave enough to even come out to my parents. I was in my late 20s, early 30s when we finally had a conversation, which I used to be embarrassed by, and now I'm like, well, whatever. Judge me if you need to. So I finally bring this guy home, and I'm so stressed about it, and my mother calls me. It's for the day before Thanksgiving, and she said, just so you know, I've called everybody, and I just told them to be cool. Just be cool. Eric's bringing a man home. That man is a white, and that man is gay, and you just need to be cool. And I was like, this is very stressful. This does not feel like a, I do not feel cool now. I feel like, like I'm like, am I homophobic? Is this, do I have a problem with this? <laughs> 
And one of the people who was invited to Thanksgiving was my cousin, Martin, who is a veteran and has served multiple tours in the Middle East and is uh, just this sort of like the epitome of machismo and grit. And the word on the street, I asked my mother, I was like, what's this deal with like, everyone needs to be cool? Who are you talking to? What's the deal? And she's like, well, you know, there's a rumor that Martin would say like, uh, homophobic things about you when you were a little kid. And I was like, oh, I didn't know this. I feel like this is not information that I need to hear. And she's like, well, now you know it. And so I was so nervous to have, not only to have a boyfriend in front of my whole family, but to have like a potential conflict happening between this like epitome of machismo and Jay uh, and myself. And it turned out, you know, I guess I'll spoil the essay. Everything has a happy ending. He, <laughs> Martin was the first person to refer to Jay as my boyfriend. Not that anyone was talking around it, but he just, you know, he turned to Jay at one point and he said, Jay, you're family, so you should know that we're crazy. And then he, like, turned back to his phone. And so not only did he, like, recognize him, but he, like, referred to him as family and, and welcomed him into what I was trying to sort of, the circus that I was trying to keep at bay. And I love that. It felt to me like I was, there's like an essay, there's an episode of Frasier where Frasier and Niles buy a restaurant and everything goes wrong. I felt like I was Frasier and Niles in the restaurant, like, you know, lobsters getting electrocuted and all these other things. Meanwhile, everyone else is having this simple story where they are seeing each other across the table and engaging with each other. And I really, really love that. And I really appreciate, I've, you know, I'm so grateful to Martin and to all my family for welcoming Jay. And... You know, it, it could have gone so many different ways. I'm really, really fortunate in that respect. But I also, I love that the way my life goes, even bringing somebody home, a very traditional thing, turns into a caper. That's just how it rolls, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although I'm sure there are many family tables around the country where we would hope for a Martin and a lifeline like that. Yeah. Uh, there's always, always family drama. <laughs> so y- you also write about marching in the Pride Parade in Philadelphia while you were engaged to your husband, David, mm-hmm. who had just become the first openly gay Presbyterian pastor ordained in Philadelphia. What was that like? It was so, I love a Pride Parade. I like I write about it a lot in the book. And that was a late sort of discovery as I was working on the essays that I like, I really wanted to talk about queer community, queer presence and celebration, you know? And like, there's the, saying pride is both a party and a riot and that's true but i i also feel like the spirit behind those words is true like we are celebrating but we're also like pushing back pushing forward pushing up and pushing out and so i felt both of those currents every time that i've marched in a pride parade and i love it i also love there's like one period where i was like going to like a spinning class like six times a week and i was a skinny mini and i had like a hint of an ab, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to take off my shirt, which felt like progress. But (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Like, I'm moving my people forward here. (laughs) But eventually, you know, I sort of settled down, put a tank top back on, and a couple years later, you know, when I met David, we both had to work the Pride Parade, and I was working for the LGBT Community Center, and David was working at an LGBTQ-affirming church. And so he would go to events, like the Pride Parade, or there was a celebration that summer when marriage equality was passed by the Supreme Court. 
and he would wear his collar. He doesn't normally wear a collar, but he wanted to do it as a sort of outward sign that he was somebody who was affirming and that that he was a safe space within uh, formal religion, which can often be very dangerous and triggering for LGBTQ people, uh, among other people. And so the first time that we ended up at Pride together, I'm wearing, you know, whatever, tank top, little fedora, whatever, something weird. And he's wearing shorts and a black pastor's priest shirt and a white collar. And it was so strange to me because people would come up to him and say, like, I love your costume. And he'd be like, oh, it's not a costume. I'm actually a pastor. And they're like, okay, whatever. (laughs) And then, you know, and then I had a friend who came up and wanted to take a picture of us. And he's like, oh, you should kiss. And I was like, oh, that's where the weirdness is. I don't know that I feel right kissing the capital C church in the middle of the street. Mm. And so it was my initial introduction into being what I now am, which is a pastor's spouse. I could have kissed him, I could have not kissed him, but it was it was an education for me in the fact that I needed to separate the personal side and the side that's him and I working on a relationship from my formal relationship with church. I'm not a nun, so I'm not getting married to the church. I guess nuns get married to God. I'm not sure. I'm not Catholic. Right. But regardless, I wasn't getting married to the church. I was getting married to a a person. And that was really important for me to navigate. And it was also really helpful for me to learn that, okay, I don't have any sort of like weird psychological stuff with like vestments. I just didn't want to like kiss anybody wearing a a pastor's collar. Like that was just, (laughs) that was a little step too far for me. (laughs) You mention the the Supreme Court case, actually, and the timing of all of that. And you, you write about it when you talk about your wedding in the book and how the pastor borrowed a line from Justice Anthony Kennedy's opinion in Obergefell v. Hodges. And the line is, quote, No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. And you write in the book, I realize now that I didn't really know what those words meant then. I didn't understand their gravity, their importance, their scope. Talk a little bit more about that. On one hand, I would be surprised if anybody who's been married for more than three minutes doesn't tell you, like, oh, I had no idea what it really was. But on the other hand, I also felt like as much as I am... A romantic, and as much as I was raised on romantic comedies, and I always wanted to get married even before it was legal. I didn't know what that meant. I wanted to be in relationship. I wanted to be a spouse. I realized that there was this huge gap in my emotional growth that would normally be filled by figuring out what it means to be married, what it means to be in this phase of life, because it was never a phase of life that I was going to be in. And so there was a great amount of enthusiasm. We got married, I think, probably about two years after Obergefell v. Hodges, maybe two and a half. And so there was a great amount of enthusiasm about getting married. And then, as often is the case, then came, okay, so what does this mean? What do we do? How do we talk? We have all the normal couple things. We money and where are we going to live and blah, blah, blah. We're going to have a kid. And, but it, we also have these larger, we have these larger conversations about 
for instance, we were out with a couple the other night, and we were talking about public displays of affection. And normally, David and I don't hold hands in public because I've had, you know, as I write about in the book, I've had bad experiences with gay bashing. And um, right. And then we had one together, actually. And so I was like, normally we don't hold hands unless we're in Provincetown or San Francisco or something. And the other couple, one member of the other couple was like, well, I'm not going to change my life for anybody else. I'm not going to not be myself. And I think that is a very valid point. It is not the world that I currently live in. And so we found as our marriage progressed that we had to both navigate internal ideas and issues, but also larger social issues and societal issues about what it means to be in relationship with another person and what it means to be have that relationship be public and be in a larger relationship with the world, um, which I think is very juicy and interesting and dramatic, but it is also it adds a layer onto our marriage that is um, sometimes a little bit hard to bear. Well, as a recently engaged person, I know that there is a lot that I don't know, so uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty to learn. Although I'm a straight white cis woman, so you can put me in the heteronormative box there. I don't have to worry about hand-holding in the same way. But it is a grand adventure, so I'm told. If you got any advice, I'll take it. Oh, I have so much advice. I also have many binders on Google Drive that I started before I even met David, so I'll send everything to you. Oh, my gosh. Of marriage <laughs> advice? I love that. <laughs> Relationship <laughs> advice? I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> so I also wanted to ask you, when most people read a book, they don't really bother with the acknowledgments, um, <laughs> but I think everyone should read yours ah, thank you. um, because they may be the best acknowledgments section of any book ever written. So here's just some of, of what you write. This is going to sound weird, but thank you to everybody who has been nice to me, like the people who see me out and come up and say things like, I don't want to be a stalker, but I love your column. I spend most of my time sitting by myself, injecting Twitter into my head and trying to figure out what there is to hope for. So to have those random encounters in public or at a play reading or even in DMs is wonderful. And that also kind of ties to the quote that you selected at the beginning. If you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate. Give into it. So talk about that and, and also who you think first. In the acknowledgments. <laughs> uh, again, the acknowledgments were one of those, another thing where I was like, they are going to fire me and take the money back from this book. And I didn't really know how to do acknowledgments. There's plenty of talks on craft or whatnot, but I was like, oh, what is this, an Academy Award speech? What do I do? I just think everybody I've ever met. So I was like, I was like, well, I think if we're going to acknowledge, if we're acknowledging people, I think we should start by acknowledging Beyonce. Like, we should just acknowledge that Beyonce Naturally. is out there. We exist at the same time as Beyonce. Hello. I mean, how are we, like, I don't understand how people are writing books and they're not acknowledging Beyonce. It's wild to me. So I yeah. was like, let's start with her. Um, and I think <laughs> that I acknowledge my therapist because he's a very important part of my life. And he will probably never read the book because he, like, has boundaries, which is so annoying. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I wrote the book to be in community. I wrote the book during two very, very lonely years in my life. David and I had just moved back to Baltimore when I got the book deal for his job. And so I was writing at home by myself in isolation and without sort of a community around me. And the 
moments where I'd be on the Mark train to D.C. to host the Moth, or the moments at the Moth, or the moments randomly in New York City sometimes, where people would come up and say, like, I am aware of you, I am aware that you exist, and I appreciate it, were so gratifying, not only because it's nice to hear nice things about your work, but it's nice to know that you exist. And so, I mean, that's the ultimate ambition of this book. That's the work that's trying to be done in the epilogue. I'm trying to say, like, I would like to exist in the future. In fact, I'm going to write this book with the idea that I will exist in the future. I'd make that choice. And I hope that when in the future, where we both are, we can be in a relationship with each other. I think that's that's exactly how I understood books when I was growing up, going to the library. The library was just a universe of different relationships and worlds and perspectives that I could inhabit. And to be on the other side of that and to know that there will be a stranger in some library somewhere who will pull this book off of a shelf and say like, oh, I didn't know that this is a way that life could go, but I recognize myself in it, some part of myself, is a really extraordinary thing. So I wanted to, one, sort of acknowledge that that is sometimes happening in my life now with people who read the column. And two, I wanted, if some people read the acknowledgments, I also wanted to, like, make sure people know, like, you, please speak to me. (laughs) And that's really, I mean, that's my general consent, like, my general mode. Like, I would just like someone to speak to me. So I... I didn't know whether it was allowed, if, whether I was allowed to do all the things I did in the acknowledgments, but I'm very glad that they have not yet cut them. So I'm excited about that. Well, it's great. I would encourage everyone to read them. And last, before we let you go, you are very busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have another book coming out later this year called Reclaiming Her Time, a biography of Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who you co-author with Helena Andrews Dyer. And I think it's coming out in September. So without giving away all the good stuff, tell us what you can about that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm very excited. I was not expecting to write another book this soon, but Day Street Books approached Helena and my agent, and they were looking for somebody or a pair of people, it turns out, to write basically a version of the Notorious RBG book but for Maxine Waters. And so the idea behind it is not to be a be-all and an end-all, and it's not to be a tell-all. It's to cover the scope of her life and the narrative of her life. We're very interested in, in telling a story, and we're very interested in telling a story with voice because the perspective that we're taking is that her voice, like both her actual, like, physical voice and her perspective, her way of understanding America is so extraordinary and electric. And the things that she has done in service of the ideals that she has are, I believe, the height of patriotism. And I believe also above and beyond what a lot of people are able to do. And so we wanted to sort of take somebody who has become a bit of a meme lately in some people's eyes, and I played a part in that, and add depth to it. So as I was doing, I went to Maxine Boot Camp, I called it. I spent months and months and months researching different aspects of her life, and I learned about how she was a key figure in having California divest from South Africa, which was under apartheid government at that time. I learned about her key role in the Los Angeles uprising after Rodney King was beaten by police. 
I also learned that she had a relationship with Tupac Shakur, uh, which I would never have guessed and never had known, and that she was one of the only politicians who was standing up for the rights of rap artists, gangster rap artists, as they were called back then, to make their work. And one of the interesting things that I discovered in that period is that her basic thesis was, these are Black men in my district who are entrepreneurs. There are no opportunities for them. There is no education for them. And they're making music in their garages. That music is then being sold to the biggest music companies in the world and disseminated. So they're not the villains here. And we wouldn't be having this conversation about whether their music is appropriate if they weren't successful. And so we're saying to these men, there's no opportunity, there's no job for you. And also, when you make your own money, we're actually going to stop that pipeline too. So I thought that I, I think that her perspective is very, very interesting. And I was really happy to be able to lend a little bit of my voice to a story about her life and her voice. The title may not remain that Reclaiming Her Time, but there there will be a book about Maxine Waters out in September from Day Street Books. Well, when that comes out, hopefully we can have you and Helena back on to talk more about it. It sounds like it will be a fascinating read. But until then, everyone can enjoy your book that comes out next month, Here For It, or How to Save Your Soul in America. And thank you so much for joining us, Eric. It was great. Thank you. This was wonderful. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 